0: Again, I am, I'm Peter, if you're visiting. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs. We are going to get right into our sermon series on the Trinity. Right back in, we're uh, towards the second half of our study in the Trinity. And again, I, I want to do, before we get into today's message and get into God's Word today, um, I want to just share with you a little bit, for two or three minutes, uh, in general, about why we study the Trinity and why we believe this strange and mysterious thing that God is three persons in one God. I actually got that backwards in the first service, so uh, thank you for whoever reminded me of the accidental yet blatant heresy. Uh, we'll go with the second service recording here. One, one God, three persons, almost messed it up again. You see, it's It's a mystery. It's a mystery that we embrace. And today, even as we embrace God's oneness in his, his, his being one God, one essential God, and yet three persons being manifest today in our message, it's going to be an ever important message to approach the table of God in Jesus that he sets before us. That's what we're going to get to today. But let me just share with you, again, some things about the Trinity that you need to know to be able to defend the truth. None of us get the option of embracing the truth without defending the truth. So I want to help you with one thing today. The Trinity. Did you know? Did you know that the Bible does not actually use the word, the Trinity, The word, the Trinity, is actually not found in the Bible. And some would say that because the word, the Trinity, is not in the Bible, then the the Bible doesn't talk about the Trinity. Well, I'm here to tell you that that's very unreasonable. Because did you know that the word freedom is not actually in the Declaration of Independence? So if if that's true, then wait a minute. When, When godly men like Frederick Douglass in the 19th century, a powerful abolitionist, or Martin Luther King Jr. in the 20th century, would use the treasured document of our nation as a framework to apply freedom and would cry with anointing for freedom in our country. Is, is that inconsistent? Because the declaration says liberty rather than freedom? No. No. Because the Declaration of Independence talks about freedom, even though the word freedom is not used. Much like the Bible is replete, full of the Trinity, even though the word Trinity is not used. In fact, the Bible does not contain the word or the phrase, the Bible, either. But we can know that this exalted phrase that literally means the holy book is not blown out of proportion because of what we can know from how the Bible has, has been inspired and, and godly men have been inspired by the Holy Spirit to record what God wrote in three different millennia, on three different continents, in 66 different books, within miraculously interwoven truth. It is worthy of the title, the Bible. And there are a lot of things in the Bible that uh, communicate that we can, we can understand in words that we use that communicate comprehensive truth found in the Bible that's refined and used in modern language. For instance, the word omniscience is not used in the Bible, but we can know from the Bible the treasure that God is all-knowing and sovereign. The word incarnation is not used in the Bible, but the mystery of how God, Jesus, the Son, And one point in human history was born of a virgin and put on human flesh. As St. Augustine says, he added humanity to his divinity. How does that work? I don't know. It's incarnation. It's mysterious. Atheism isn't used in the Bible, but the Bible clearly says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So Trinity, Trinity is is something that the Bible speaks a lot about, even though it wasn't until the third century until a man named Tertullian, one of the f- church fathers, first used the word to communicate the truth that God is one God in three persons. And he actually used this phrase before, uh, as uh, in, in contrast with what Dan Brown and Da Vinci Code would say, uh, he actually used this phrase long before Christianity was legalized in Rome, long before the, the fullness of the canonization was decided on in the in the 4th century, Trinity was used and the Trinity was spoken of thousands of years before that. And today, for the second time, we're going to zero in on the second person of the Trinity, our God, the Son of God, Jesus. We're going to circle back to Psalm 23. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, to honor God's word. And we're going to see something else of the Son of God in Psalm 23. But I am going to go ahead and read the whole psalm again. It's my favorite psalm. And no, if you memorize it, you cannot get an In-N-Out animal-style cheeseburger. That was the last, was the last time you had your chance already. Four people memorized it and re- stopped me and recited it. There will be more challenges in the future. But here we go. Psalm 23, starting with verse 1. The Lord... You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy or love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you. You all can be seated as we pray. Lord, please add a blessing to the reading of your word. Amen. Now, the last time we were in our Trinity series, we unpacked the first four verses of Psalm 23 as we talked about Jesus the shepherd. Now, today, I want to unpack the last two verses of Psalm 23, and we are going to see another aspect of our God, Jesus. You see, somewhere in between verses 4 and 5, we are led out of the pasture And we are led into the very house of God to sit at the very table of God where we see that Jesus is our great and mighty host, Jesus, the host. Again, verse five starts with these words, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, some of y'all might at first glance say, man, why would I be wanting to sit at a table with my enemies? That doesn't sound like a very good meal. But listen, when David wrote down this this phrase, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, we are to, to see a picture of a king who goes and conquers his enemies and takes them captive while they have to sit and watch as this king prepares a mighty feast, a banquet, to honor his loyal servants as they simply delight Tauntingly delight in the glory of the king, in his provision, while the enemies just look on in hunger, unsatiated. This is the picture that Jesus does for David. He is the king that conquers his enemy, prepares a table before his enemy for his children, those he calls his own. And listen, you need to know this Jesus is still taking his enemies captive. And he's still hosting a great banquet of delight for those he calls his own. He's still doing it. And listen, the enemy is powerless to prevent your enjoyment of your Savior if he is yours. He's powerless. His only power is deceiving you and you, trying to get you to think otherwise. He's powerless. Our greatest weapon is to simply delight in our Savior, to sit at his feet and to enjoy what he alone could provide for us, what we've never been able to provide, that we've gone to so many other enemies for the great provision and seen it lacking. And yet when he calls us to be his own, he prepares a table. And our greatest weapon is to simply delight. And nothing can prevent that. The enemy would would like you to think that he could stop you from enjoying Jesus. He cannot stop you. He's powerless. His only weapon is to deceive you, to make you think that he has some sort of power. But listen, the greatest way to defeat his lies and defeat the enemy is delighting in Jesus. And yet the, the greatest way to help the enemy is delighting in anything else More than Jesus, he's powerless. He wants us to worry and to glorify our fears and anxieties about the world. He wants to glorify and manipulate our fears about our our finances, relationships, our worries, and to glorify and build those lusts and fears and worries out of where they belong. Jesus wants to grow his delight in him and thereby make the enemy rendered powerless and have to actually watch as you conquer in the delight of the king. You know, your life is a battle of delight. You need to know this. Your life is essentially a battle of delight. And your ability to conquer the enemy is an ability to delight in Jesus. It's all about delight. What do you delight in? before I came to know Jesus as a young man, as a younger man, um, I, I actually was under the deception and this bondage of deception of lies that the enemy held me under and that I gladly and pervertedly kept myself under this, this these lies that I kind of believed that to live a life of faith, I would have to render all of my desires and my my longings for excitement in life i would have to essentially erase those desires to kind of surrender my life to this this religious state of perpetual boredom and so i kept doing my thing and i and i would do what i wanted and i would try to to manipulate other people to get what i wanted because i had all these desires that i wanted to fulfill and no matter how many times i tried to fulfill them It was not left fulfilled. And I thought God was just just wanting me to take all those desires and erase them so I could kind of sit in clouds and kind of sing some some hymns that I didn't want to sing or something like that. Uh, Side note, I really love those hymns now. The Long story short, what I saw was that God wasn't wanting me to erase those desires. He was wanting me to bring all my desires to him and see if they would even compete with the table he prepared before me. And they didn't. He wasn't insecure, hoping, oh man, Pete, Peter wants all these things, and I don't know, I don't know how to bow battle those desires that he has, because all I got is some, some rules for him. See, that's what I thought. That's the deception I was under. And what I soon realized is that Jesus is the one who can unlock and redeem all my desires. He is the object of desire that I would not be left unfulfilled. Let's just take sexual desire, for, an in, for instance, God wasn't sitting there before I came to know Jesus, biting his proverbial nails saying, man, I don't know what to do with with the sexual desire Peter has. In fact, God knew, God who made sex, by the way, he knew that only in him and only the life that he had for me and only in the exhilaration of his design for it and his protection in it in marriage could I see fulfillment with that small desire? And, and only in him can I find that there is a greater desire that overrides my perversions of those desires. Only there. And you know what? Jesus also wasn't insecure about my other desires. My desire for fame or, or my desire for, for uh, selfish ambitions. I had this desire for fame long, back, way back, long before Twitter. I wanted to be followed. I wanted my life to exude something of worth, right? And Jesus wasn't worried about those desires. In fact, Jesus says, look, bring those to me and I'll give you a desire for a greater ambition, a greater adventure, a greater fame, my fame over your fame. What I found is that since seeing my, myself, my being, my life restored in light of the, the, the great and wonderful Jesus who prepares a table before me of delight, since coming to know him and being renewed in him, I can really look back on my old life, chasing my own desires, and really see that, that these new desires for his kingdom eat those old desires for lunch. And my old life is the life that's boring. This exhilaration of his kingdom, this adventure and delight in him is a greater battle. And your life is a battle of delight. I think the author C.S. Lewis puts it best when he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea or a feast at his table. C.S. Lewis says, We are far too easily pleased. It's not that we seek pleasure that's the problem. It's that we're too easily pleased. And when we go before Jesus, he says, oh, oh you want pleasure? Oh, oh, you want relational continuity? You, you long for relationship? You have longings? You have desires? Bring him to me. Bring him to me. He, he understands that he can unlock and give you greater ones. Jesus is the only being, mysteriously, who we can simultaneously be completely satisfied by and yet also hungry for. It's a mysterious adventure of delight that we find in Jesus. He prepares a table before me, a table of delight, in the presence of my enemies, and what I can do against that enemy is enjoy Jesus, and it disarms him. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and he anoints my head with oil. Now, when it says he anoints my head with oil... Some have wrongly inferred that this is a a coronation anointing, like when David was anointed by Samuel to be the king. But this isn't an anointing of a, a king. This is actually the great host anointing his guest. We know this from the New Testament when when Jesus spells out the the responsibility of the host to to rightly lavish a, a good hosting love on his guests. When he says to a Pharisee, he says, look, I came in here and you never anointed my head with oil. In essence, it is the great host. It is the king himself that is anointing his subjects, his beloved ones. That's the picture of what we see here in Psalm 23 when it says, You anoint my head with oil. It's something that only the host can give us. Now we know from the New Testament that this is more like a priestly anointing. We know from the New Testament that we are all priests of a living God. We are, if we know Jesus, we are bridges between people who do not know God and are completely without the anointing of knowing God, like we used to be, a bridge between the lost and God himself. And the thing that, that allows the flow of life and anointing and my, mystery of God to those who don't know him is the, the anointing of God that he brings himself. And we know from, from the New Testament that when, when Jesus anoints his priests, us, with that anointing, that, that ability that's not found in ourselves to do what he's called us to do, to be his priests, that he anoints us with his anointing. And, And this anointing is so much foreshadowing of when God himself baptizes with or in the person of the Holy Spirit. He baptizes with the person of the Holy Spirit. But we're going to talk a lot more about him next week and the week after. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows This is the great thing about desire. It's an overflowing desire. It's an overflowing provision that God has for us. Why is it that in one of the most wealthy and prosperous generations, nations, cultures, and history, why is it that you, like me, come on, and and you have to admit to yourself, can so often be prone to thinking about what we're lacking the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. My cup overflows. But why is it that I'm, I'm so often uh, focusing on that cup? That cup is actually go, going empty there. Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And yet we're so worried about three months from now bread. And he continues to overflow our cup. But we're measuring on how long it will take for that, th- that thing to be empty. But listen, Jesus doesn't give empty cups. And Jesus doesn't give full cups. Jesus gives overflowing cups. He is meant for us to be positioned so much so that we get so much anointing, so much provision, so much delight, so much desire in him, the great host, that we flow over strategically into the lives of people he's sovereignly placed around us, that we are to pray for spill over into. So listen, there's no competition between our worship of him, our delight in him, and our representing him evangelistically. It's it's the same thing. We have so much delight in Jesus that it just can't be contained in us and it's overflowing. We used to desire lesser things, desire earthly things, but now we can earnestly desire the greater gifts, especially that we would prophesy, especially that we would spill over with the revelation of who he is through our lives flowing into the lives of others. It's an overwhelming earth shattering enemy disarming desire that he provides more and more an endless abundance of supply for my cup overflows. Verse 6, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now again, this word follow is an interesting word because even when we fail to follow him and we fail to follow goodness and mercy, it says that goodness and mercy follows us. And the word used here for follow is literally like hunts me down, persecutes me, Comes after me. Think about that. Can you think about your life for a minute? Can you remember back to times where you've you've tried your hardest to follow God and you failed? Uh, you've tried your hardest to follow after good things, but you haven't done very well. And maybe times where you've become disillusioned, or for whatever reason, you've started to wander away. Think about this. Times where emotionally or literally, or figuratively, you've wandered away from your trust in the great host, in Jesus. In times where, nonetheless, he has hunted you down. Your resolve to wander is no match for his resolve to follow you. For some of you, you're you're in the process of his hunt right now as we speak. Goodness and mercy is continuing to follow you as it's continuing to follow me. How long? All the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus is the great host. And let me show you one distinct place of many, but one really good place where Jesus the host is made manifest in the New Testament. I'm going to go to Luke chapter 10 and read some verses where what we've just read in these last two verses of chapter 23 of 23rd psalm is shown in the very life of Jesus verse 38 of chapter 10 of uh, Luke's gospel account it says now as they were on their way Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house important words verse 38 f- verse 39 And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Much serving. And when she went up to him and said, Lord, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell them to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. Mary is struggling to, to really capture the social dynamic of the situation. Has it ever been you? Have you ever been in like a, perhaps a new social situation and you've been slow to gather the dynamic, like kind of who's in charge, uh, the, the social dynamic of that situation? happens to me all the time. It happens when, when you talk as much as I do. It happens a lot. But here you have Mary and you have Martha. And they have drastically different viewpoints. Martha thought it was, it was her burden to serve Jesus, to be the host. But Mary somehow knew that Jesus wasn't looking for wine and matzah bread to be served to him. She knew that she was the guest in her own house. She could read from the Savior that He's the host and she is the guest, and that He was preparing a table and she sat at His feet and enjoyed the greatest feast of her life. The very bread of heaven that was promised was speaking, and she was eating His words. He was speaking, and she was getting her fill. Now, from Psalm 23 and the table prepared before us and from this moment, I have one big takeaway that I want to challenge you with and it is an imperative. Do not serve Jesus. Now, I don't necessarily mean that operatively, but essentially. We need to know this. The essential response of our life is, don't serve Jesus. Jesus said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, he's the host of the greatest feast and you are not. Acts 17, Paul reveals the God who made the world and everything in it is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. And I understand, listen, that the Bible says that we are to serve God. But so many of us, if you're like me, we can hear things like serve the Lord with gladness. It's a command in the Bible. And we can think operatively, and really we can think essentially that my first and foremost calling is to serve God. I, I just got done reading the, the rest, of the end of, of Joshua, the book of Joshua, where he stands before the people and he says, choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But listen, eight verses later, when, when the people said, we're going to serve the Lord, his response is, you are not able to serve God. And history shows that he was right. And my history shows that he was, he was right. If the first thing I ever do is to try to serve God, my life shows that it was a failed attempt. But when I can sit at his feet and be served by him, then I can be reconstituted to be able to be of his service, in his service. And I constantly need the sustenance that only he serves to reboot me, recalibrate me. And so essentially, listen, don't serve Jesus. Your boast at the end of your life, when you stand in his presence And the enemies are condemned. The things that would try to destroy your delight, your boast is not in what you've done or how you've served God. It's how you've received and eaten and feasted on and delighted in in what only He can serve you in. It's in the blood that is your sustenance, that is your covering, the body that only He provides that you had never been able to provide. So don't be mistaken. Yes, we need to serve God, but no. Because there's a way that we can serve God that belittles him and dishonors him. I want to drive this point home by reading a a passage from the book Brothers, We Are Not Professionals by John Piper. He says, what is is God looking for in the world? Assistance? No. The gospel is not a help wanted ad. Neither is it is the call to Christian service. God is not looking for people to work for him. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the world, 2 Chronicles says, looking for those whose hearts are fully blameless towards him so that he might show himself powerful on their behalf. God is not a scout looking for his first draft choices to help his team win. He is an unstoppable fullback, ready to run touchdowns to anyone who will give him the ball. But isn't there some way we can get something we can give God that won't belittle him to the status of beneficiary? Yes. Our anxieties. It's a command cast your anxieties on him. First Peter says God will gladly receive anything from us that shows our dependence on him and his all sufficiency. The difference between uncle Sam And Jesus Christ is that Uncle Sam won't enlist you in his service unless you are healthy. And Jesus won't enlist you unless you are sick. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's prepared a table before you. And you know what your job is? Sit down and eat. Just sit and eat. That's your job. Before we go to communion right now, I'm praying that as we receive communion together, that Jesus can speak to us even through the sustenance he provides, that we'll have such a good meal that it will change how we receive Jesus moving forward. My prayer is that even as you're receiving Jesus in the next five to 10 minutes, that you would allow him to speak to you about more sitting at his feet and enjoying how he serves you. Honestly, the desperate need our culture has to be served by Christians hinges on our ability to be served by Jesus. And look, there's a desperate need in our culture. There is harassed and helpless sheep that need nothing more for us to lay down anything else that stands in the way of being served by Jesus and to receive of him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you. I'm going to ask everyone in here, what are ways that you can lay down other things, other worries, other distractions, other social media habits in the coming days and weeks and months remaining of summer? You can lay down those things and practically sit at Jesus' feet. I'm going to practically ask you to come up with something. And I don't want to seed too many ideas here like, hey, you should take a day, a a half a day off of work and go and just be alone and leave your iPhone at home. That's the last I'll do of, of seeding ideas. But I'm going to ask you to stand before Jesus and say, what is it? Is it a renewed commitment to read a certain portion of your scripture by a certain deadline and to sit and ponder and to memorize? I'm going to ask you to do something radical, but I'm going to ask you to do that not in service of God as if you were going to do that for Him, but I'm asking you today just to sit, enjoy the elements of of communion as we're going through this last song and ask Him, what is it that you're asking of me to delight in you? Can you stand to your feet, please? Here's what I want to do with our time remaining I want all of us, as we come up to the altar, there, there's, there's the, the elements of communion at the altar up front and in the back. But as you go to receive the elements of communion, I'm asking for a trade. What are things that you need to lay down? Maybe it's outrage. Maybe it's fear of the future. All that's going on in the world. Fear of finances. Maybe it's uh, anxieties. Anxieties. Maybe it's particular relationships that are not honoring God. Maybe it's you striving to serve God and it's a striving and stained endeavor. I'm asking you to trade. I'm asking you to lay those things down at the altar and receive the elements that only Jesus provides. For some of you, it might be the very first time where that exchange is complete and it's a literal altar call. Come to the altar of God give your life to him, receive his life that he's provided for you. And today might be this moment that you tell your kids about where you became born again while receiving communion. That could be it for you. And so I'm asking you, if that's you, you can, you can pray with, with us afterwards, but for all of us, there's an exchange. On the night he was betrayed, he took the Passover bread, he held it up, he broke it before his disciples, and he says, this, this thing that you've religiously been doing for years, this piece of bread that you're used to, this is my body broken for you. Then he took the cup and he says, this is the cup, my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Take and drink, he says. So during this last song, you can receive the elements from up here or back there and go back to your seat and and listen to Jesus receive from him. And he's going to show you how to, to lead you into a place of resting and receiving of him in the days to come. Lord, bless this time. Amen.